Hi everyone, Francisco here. Just before we get started, I wanted to share something I'm really excited about. I recently launched the Story Powers Bootcamp, a course that teaches you everything you need to know about how to find, craft, and tell stories that work. But it's not just an online course, because you get personalized feedback from me for all the practical activities and three hours of live coaching to work through any challenges or focus on specific projects. So it's like if you bought a cookbook, but the chef came along with it. So go to storypowers.com and click on course. All the information you need will be there. So please check it out. And if you love the show and would like to support us, you can go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash storypowers. I drink about five coffees a day, so any support would be much appreciated. All right, on with the show. Welcome to the Story Powers Podcast, the show about the power of stories, the people who tell them, and why you should be doing it too. I'm your host, keynote speaker and storytelling coach, Francisco Mafus. My guest today is Norman Bell. Norman is a storytelling and presentation coach, award-winning speaker, theater and film actor. He's passionate about helping purpose-driven entrepreneurs and organizations tell stories to connect with their audiences on an emotional level, which leads to more clients, more donations, and more impact. Even though Norman has written and performed in successful one-man shows, has acted alongside Christian Bayo, it's clear that all his life and work have brought him to this moment. Because the author of a book called The Story-Powered Speaker is now a guest at the Story Powers podcast. And if that's not proof we all have a destiny, I don't know what is. Ladies and gentlemen, Norman Bell. Norman, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Francisco. It's a pleasure to be here. Yes, thank you. Should we start by settling the copyright issue that the one that you might know about and the one you might not know about? <laughs> oh, sure. Go ahead. Right. So so I don't know if you've actually copyrighted this thing, but I haven't actually bothered copywriting story powers as one word. Do you have a copyrighted story powered the way you write it? I haven't. And I've seen some other companies in other parts of the world use that phrase story powered before. Actually, I haven't seen story powers. On my end, I have no issues. I hadn't even really thought about it. But yes, we can we can discuss this more if, if needed. But I, I'm cool with it. No, I'm kidding. I'm not really bothered. I mean, I I know there is some German guy who seems to have a podcast called Story Powers, but I think the company you might be talking about is one I'm very familiar with, which is Anecdote. So Anecdote, they are a story consultancy, and they have copyrighted the term, I think it's story-powered with a hyphen, story-powered sales and story-powered leadership or something like that. But but yeah, I mean, <laughs> I don't think, I think unless you use it in that exact configuration, who cares, right? Sure. I'll, I'll look that up afterwards. I know they're in Australia, so I don't know if there's anything there. But anyway. Yes. And I, I do find that it's somewhat amusing to me, at least, that today, you know, there, there is this name uh, coincidence between, between the, the stuff we're doing. And two weeks ago, I had a guest on the podcast that has the same name as me, or, or my surname, Mafuz, is his first name. So it was very strange because often throughout the conversation, I'll say Mafuz. And I was like, why am I talking to myself? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Mafuz, meet Mr. Mafuz. Okay, so the first thing I wanted to ask you about was about this thing you call the, the mango effect. Okay, It's a common concept in storytelling, but I like how you branded it that. Can you just talk a bit about what the hell that is and and what do you mean by the mango effect? The most powerful examples I have experienced of regarding the power of storytelling is when I was a, a solo theater performer. And, um, you know, I've done a, a variety of different shows. I did a, for example, a, a full length solo performance about the subprime mortgage meltdown, where I played like 11 different characters and people were like, oh, that's the first time I really understood what happened. It was before the Big Short, right? Big Short was 2010 and your thing was subprime was 2009, wasn't it? That's right. That's right. I, I I probably could have pushed it a little bit more to get to Broadway or something before the Big Short came out. But but yeah, it's a kind of this in the same vein there. And the big short has Christian Bale, who I played, uh, you know, opposite for this scene in The Machinist. But anyway, that's another story. But I did a short solo performance one time. It was just maybe 10 or 15 minutes. Very simple story about my 
tempestuous relationship with an 18 pound curmudgeon of a cat named Mango. So I'm not talking about the fruit, the mango. I'm talking about a cat, this orange cat, Mango. And when we first met, uh, we we hated each other. I would come into the the room and he would growl at me. I would growl back at him. But then after a, you know, a period of time, an unlikely thing happened, which was that we kind of fell in love with each other. One morning I found him kneading on my chest and giving me some love and blinks. And I found myself being silly with uh, animals the way that we are. And like, oh, come here and give me a cattle, you cattle, you know. And then, so our hearts kind of opened up to each other. And then unfortunately, about six months later, he he got sick and he died. And so the the piece that I performed was was just a a simple story about kind of acting out what I what I just said there and just sort of the journey from hating each other, loving each other, and then feeling heartbroken after after he died. And it was such a, and I should note also maybe when I was first developing the piece, there was a lot more to it. There was like, I had all this stuff about, oh, the universe, hey, did you know that the universe was the size of a marble when it first started? And then it was kind of conceptual things. And then the story of, of Mango was just a piece of that. But my wife, as I was kind of performing it for her, she's my sometimes director. She was like, you know, the only part that about this that's really resonating is the part about Mango. And so we stripped away everything else. And I just told that story. And it had a, you know, it had a really powerful effect on certain people in the audience, right? And they would come up to me after the show, sometimes with tears in their eyes, and they would uh, show me pictures of, of their animals that had passed. You know, oh, this is my dog Coco that died two years ago. And I heard this phrase over and over again, you know, I really related to your story. And so that, that was just one of those times where one, I saw this example of when I, you know, had all these big ideas that I wanted to get across, but those weren't really landing. And when I stripped it away and told a simple human story that was emotional at its core, that was what really resonated. And so, yeah, that's the mango effect is sort of when you tell a story that really connects with people on an emotional level and you hear that phrase, you're like, I really related to your story, then you know you've you've connected with someone. Well, I really related to this story because my wife is also sometimes my director, even though I don't act. She's just my boss. She's like, no, that doesn't work. Stop doing it. Stop making the joke. <laughs> no, but, but but really, I do really relate to the story because I remember a few years ago when I was in one of those Toastmasters competitions, I did a speech. They got me, I think, second place at national level, and it was about my dog. And I remember the very first time I gave the speech outside of a competition, <laughs> I gave the speech and, you know, like with any animal story, the, the animal dies at the end. And the person who went up on stage to to evaluate my speech, which for anyone who doesn't know, in Toastmasters, it's a public speaking club. And usually some people give speeches, the other people go up there and tell them, give them constructive feedback. This guy went up there and, and like I almost cried during my speech. And then he gets up to the evaluation and he starts and he starts kind of words start catching in his throat. And it's like, I just really miss my dog too. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. And then, and then it was the same. And I did a competition. I kept, I had people coming up to me. It was like, this was my dog. This was my cat. Oh, okay. Okay. So you've had the same experience. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's worth it that if you ever, or worth remembering, if you ever do a workshop or a presentation for about this in Europe, remember that when you say the mango effect, a lot of people are going, what, the, the, the clothing brand? The one that has, you know, Gerard Piquet and Zidane, and that's what I thought was the mango effect. I was like, oh, this will be interesting. Uh, <laughs> I didn't realize that's a cat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I say not the clothing brand, but the eighteen-pound orange cat. When you share a story of loss and and loss of a pet, which is something I think most people can relate to, that's kind of obvious why that works, but. So, for example, when you do a story about subprime, now now this is easier for people to understand because of the big short and how popular that movie was. But when you were figuring out the story of the big short, what were the relatable pieces in there? Well, I actually worked. I mean, this was just like a, a my normal career work has been in communications, whether it's been story, you know, these now I'm doing storytelling, I've done copywriting and so forth. But I had a little 
detour into this world where I just, you know, I'd just come home. Actually, I was, I don't think we've mentioned yet, Francisco, but I was living in Barcelona uh, for, I lived in Barcelona for five years, actually not far from where it sounds like Francisco lives. But I came home to Seattle in 2004 and I, I needed a job and I ended up working at this subprime mortgage. I mean, it was like a mortgage company. And so I, I wasn't a mortgage loan officer, but I was a, they called us J-Lo's, uh, junior loan officers. <laughs> J-Lo's. Oh, Jesus. J-Lo's. Yeah. Like Jennifer Lopez, right? And it was just a crazy atmosphere. It was just sort of like, you know, I, I actually, I haven't seen the big short. So, but I'm sure there's the, some of that in there. And just if you, any, any movie you've seen about wall street or whatever, you can maybe kind of imagine just a really hyped up atmosphere. And so a lot of the, the play was based on my own experiences. And then the latter half that then I had some kind of a, a fictional customer that got you know, brought into the, the problems that they had as a result of, of getting into this. And some of the loan officers were based on people that I had met there. So the easiest was to write the things that, that I experienced myself, obviously. Yeah, because this is something I, I mean, I fully believe in this. And I think this is the great talent that people like Michael Lewis, who easily one of the best written storytellers out there for sure, or you know Malcolm Gladwell, do, which is you can make just about anything sound interesting if you find some character in there that it's relatable, and you and you tell it with enough details that it feels like a real, uh, real life experience that you're reading or watching. Because of the types of stories I know often often tell, I don't believe in this thing that. It needs to be an exciting. The thing itself needs to be exciting for it to make for an exciting story. And I, I was just just off just a few minutes before we started. I was finishing a presentation to uh, Hewlett Packard, and you know I have a whole bunch of corporate stories in there. But I had a story about my kid going to school in Barcelona and finding it strange that people spoke funny because you know it's a local school. They speak Catalan, and she didn't at the time. I had a story about my wife leaving her job or you know getting out of her job and being kind of screwed by her boss. And I had a story about me not being the best of fathers and finding trying to find a different way to to do that. And on the surface of it, none of those stories are terribly exciting. I mean, there's barely much happening in those stories. But I would argue that because the character is relatable enough and I'm making it seem like an action scene, something that actually happened, then you leave it through with me and it, you you get the, the emotion and you get the value out of a story like that. But that's why I thought it was pretty interesting that you had a subprime show. Yeah, well, and I would say for everything that you just mentioned, you know, one of my tips in my book is to kind of get in trouble. If you look, if you think about any movie you've seen, any book you've read, the and I know from the theater world, you know, that conflict is at the center of every every story. And I use Star Wars as, as an example, is something we probably, most of us know, and one of my favorite stories. And of course, we don't have space battles in our own lives or Darth Vader or the Death Star, but we do have our own, and it can be big trouble or little trouble, right? And so just even in the examples you just mentioned there, it was sort of like, well, your, your child went to school and why do they speak funny? So that was something something challenging or a slight different, you know, something that a minor obstacle that your child had to overcome. And in the other examples as well. In my workshops, I usually ask people to start with thinking of some turning point moments in their lives. So because stories are often about challenges, but also about change, you know, where something changed for you that either got better or worse, could be a big change or a little change. But those those are often good places to start. I fully agree with you. I in my core like the online course that I've that I've got and, and in trainings I've given, I the three things I tell people to look for when they're looking for their origin story are almost exactly what you said, challenge, change. And then the third one I call Kung Fu moments. And this is, you know, take your pick could either be the, I was thinking of the Matrix when Neo gets all the, the uploads and says, I know Kung Fu. That moment of realization where you have a power that you didn't have before. It works perfectly well for Kung Fu Panda as well. I fully agree with you with you there. And on the on the subject of origin stories, which is something I, I work with with my clients too, origin stories work really, really well for speakers. They work really well for entrepreneurs. They they work really well for people that, in a way, are on their own. At least that's been my experience. 
Have you found that there is some way to use origin stories when people work for larger organizations, if you're not the founder, I mean? Yeah, I've been working with organizations lately and focusing, you know, there's so many different stories. Actually, there's, you know, the author, Paul Smith. I had him on. Oh, you had him on. Great, great. The 10 stories that, you know, leaders should tell. I forget the exact title of his book, but so that's a good place to start. It's a short book, actually. So I'd recommend checking that out. Out of those, I have focused recently on three stories for for organizations. Who I am, that's kind of the origin story. Who we are, sort of a culture and value story. Like who are we collectively? What do we stand for? And then where we're going is sort of the the vision story of where we're headed. And I found that to be uh, helpful. There is, um, yeah, I'm I'm not going to remember the name. There's somebody else that has a, a similar framework. And basically, yeah, it was called like the story of self, the story of us, and the story of now. And that story of now is sort of like, why do we take action now? Marshall Gans, he's from um, Harvard or something like that. So I should probably have these names ready at the ready. But, and the, the who I am story is really your personal why story, right? And everybody in the organization needs to have their own why, what motivates them personally. And it may go back before your time in the company might go back to childhood. Who knows? This is why I like to look through the the turning point moments because it might not be the story you think it is until you start to dig for some story gold. And then the who we are story is in an organization I worked with recently, a healthcare organization. It was really stories of like how people were showing up for work. Here's some of the values that we've identified that are that we stand for in this organization. But it's one thing to say, oh yeah, we stand for generosity or dedication, et cetera. Those are just words. But if you can back those up with a story, for example, last Thanksgiving, one of the doctors, this is, I mean, vaguely based on uh, what came out of that, you know, came in and did two two overnight shifts to help with the the overload of patients because of the COVID pandemic. So stories related to the that kind of illustrate those values. And then then, you know, the really interesting conversation, sometimes there's people in different parts, leaders in different parts of the organization that are siloed and don't get a chance to really talk to each other. But then in some of the conversations they were getting excited about, this is where I see where, where our organization is going as far as the new technology we're using. Here's how we can reach out to the community, et cetera, et cetera. And if you can start to coalesce that into a kind of a, a vision story for the organization, that can be effective. Hope that answered your question. The vision story I find a bit trickier. I know I know Poe's approach, or at least one of his approaches, is kind of it's kind of interesting where he says, as he's told people to just get the magazine your CEO likes to read and and sort of write it, write an article as if it was in the mag like in Forbes, right? So write the article telling the story of the success your company has or the department has or the project has had but write it as if it's in the future, right? So so you don't have to like tell, uh, this is what's going to happen. You actually tell as if this has happened last year and you're just putting down on a magazine, which I think is interesting. But I, I'm always... I'm always sort of in the back foot with with some of those because I I don't know to what extent the just to me just becomes fiction right so that's that's the thing I struggle with because I've seen a lot of people teaching how you write one of these vision stories or future stories or customer stories instead of just finding one that's real instead of finding one that you, obviously you can't have the vision story before something happened but you can you can have little things that have started happening that are on the same path or or things like what you're trying to do that have happened. As an example, I've, I've tended to think that that just, I mean, it's still a real story. You're just positioning in a way of this is the beginning of what we're trying to achieve or this is like what we're trying to achieve instead of an, an exercise in, in fiction. Paul swears by that one and, and he's, he's one of the good ones. So... Uh, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say anything against him. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I think that 
that's a that's a great approach that he suggested. I I always look for I talk about in my books there's sort of the horizontal axis of story, you know, sort of the future and past, but then there's also the presence, the vertical kind of the vertical axis of the teller, right? And so I pay attention to that piece as well and I um I, I always look for stories that come alive. And so whether they're stories from our past or something that people are getting excited about in the future, and I'm, I'm thinking of this uh, workshop that I just referred to, that there were certain moments when you know, this woman was talking about the technology they use in this healthcare organization where, like, I didn't know anything about that technology, nor am I that interested in it, but I sure wanted to know more about it after she talked about it because she was super excited, right? So it's like finding those things that are legitimately that you're excited about that animate your body when you start talking about them. And I think that that's one of the things that I look for with story gold. And I think you're right though, that it should, you know, if you're doing a vision story, if it's not something that people can really relate to on an emotional level, then it'll just seem like an idea versus something that's really motivating. So, so you talked about things that, you know, make you come alive. And, and I think that that's a nice lead into something I'm I'm very curious about, which is that a lot of people love talking about how storytelling, you know, great storytelling has to do with you know the hero's journey and a lot of the techniques that are used in in movies, like you know most of the Pixar movies yeah, use stuff like that. Now you you've done acting in different capacities, you've been involved with big Hollywood movies. Knowing what you know now, how much is that connection? kind of an obvious one when when you look back into some of the cinema work you've done you know it, can you look back at those scripts and go yeah i can see exactly what they were doing there was a clear formula here or the truth is slightly more complicated and, and, and messy than what some people want to make it sound like yeah and i don't want to overplay my my film experience i think my one minute of film fame was in this this movie the machinist actually it was filmed in barcelona was it i, I, no, I had no idea it was yeah they put up signs to make it look like it was los angeles or something all this lovely food here and christian bale was you know weighed something like 70 or 80 pounds or something ridiculous yeah, yeah, he lost a ton of weight to to play this part and nobody asked him to. That's the kind of actor he is. He's just sort of like all in. He's he's I think one of our best. Yeah, so I've been in that. I I was actually in a Spanish soap opera when I was in Barcelona. Some of this is just coming to mind now. I'm a theater guy, I think at heart, even though there's more money to be made in film and commercials and TV and so forth. This whole idea of a performance coming to life or a story coming to life, I find easier to do in the theater. And it's sort of the space is sort of built for that, right? But then there's somebody like Christian Bale. We could use him as an example, as someone who is so dedicated to their role as an actor that they are that person, right? I'm sure there's some other actors you can think of, your favorites. Marlon Brando comes to mind or somebody like that. But I just find that in the film world, it's harder to kind of do that because there's so many constraints and then they're, they're looking to film things from different angles. And a lot of it, it's, there's a lot of technical stuff going on that can sometimes, and sometimes the directors don't allow the space for those kind of performances. So that's all, all, the, all the better when it, it's, it's all the more amazing when it comes through. I'm thinking of the Lord of the Rings. You know, we just binge watched the Lord of the Rings again recently. And that's, you know, such an amazing technical feat. And yet the, the performances are so amazing as well. I have a problem with the Lord of the Rings. I think it's, I mean, I love the books, even though the first book can be one of the most boring things you ever read with all the descriptions of shrubbery. <laughs> Tom Bombadil, yeah, detour there, yeah. Yeah, then I'm not sure I can say shrubbery without remembering Monty Python. My problem with The Lord of the Rings, and this is perhaps more blatant in the books than it is in the movie, is how I find Aragorn such an unrelatable character. They're entertaining and they're fun, and but all but none of them, apart with you know the hobbits, they're not they're not almost not fallible at all. Legolas is a archery killing machine. Aragorn doesn't seem to be in any danger throughout any of the three movies, really. It's one of those movies, as an example, I think if you didn't have The Hobbits, the movie just wouldn't work at all. It would essentially be like a James Bond or, or Fast and Furious type of movie, but with orcs, which actually doesn't sound like the worst idea ever. 
Fast and Furious, but with orcs. And then you could go into the Hobbit trilogy as even a, a level like, oh my God, that for me, that just didn't work at all. You know, I don't know how far down the rabbit hole you want to go here, but yeah, I, I think in the book, Aragorn really seemed like, well, he already even had the, the, the sword or whatever that, and he was, it was already super confident. And I could see in the movies, they were trying to give him a bit of an arc where he was unsure about whether he was going to follow the same path as Isildur, you know, cave in at the end. I think they try to show like, oh no, he's, he's taking a different path, but I hear what you're saying. Yeah. But in the meantime, I would say what really resonates with me on an emotional level is Sam. Sam's journey seems like it's going to be about Frodo, but Frodo's so busy being possessed by the ring that it's really Sam in the end that's it's so heroic. So, but anyway, I could talk about that for a while. Yeah, and in a, in a beautiful Hobbit to Hobbit romance that never never came to pass on on the on the screen, but, but seemed pretty pretty clear what they were going for. Where they were going for there. The reason I wanted to start talking about the acting you do was one because of plot and things of that nature that a lot of people love referring to cinema when they talk about storytelling. But the other thing is this idea you have in the book about acting out. Because I, perhaps because I've been exposed to too much Toastmasters in my life, but this is one of the things that I find one of the most common mistakes people make either as speakers or as storytellers is that they're not actors. They, they don't understand the concept of acting. So what they would do is they're acting out scenes like they were mimes instead of people leaving it. So all of a sudden your hand gestures become like everything is, I was talking on the phone and then I got my gun. And you know, for people who can't watch, I'm just miming every single object I'm mentioning and becomes a pantomime of, well, pantomime. But you know, that's not, no one ever speaks that way. No one will ever tell a story to their friends at dinner that way. So the, I'm always concerned when any type of advice when it comes to stories suggests that people should act. So what exactly is your take on that? Great question. Well, I always like to start with, to me, the most important part of the process, and it should be because this is where you find the stories that really resonate with you, is uncovering the stories, right? Digging for story gold. And so again, I like to, oh, there's a quote from a film director, John Frankenheimer, which is, casting is 65% of directing. And what he means by that is if you find the right person for the role, you're going to have to work so much less. It'll be so much easier to get the performance you're looking for. And so I would say that's the truth with stories as well. So in my process, as we're looking for story gold, we do some tryouts, uh, auditions to see which stories are really resonating. And I'm always looking for that story that lights you up when you tell it. And then we apply the craft and then we fine tune it. And so we're starting, we're not starting with the hand. Uh, I'm an inside out guy as, a, as opposed to an outside in guy. And I know from, from studying um, acting, both ways are valid. They both can work. But I just tend to, and, and actually most of the acting. What do those things mean? Outside in, inside out. Outside in is kind of what you were describing there of like, move your hand over here. Then look look concerned. Whereas inside out is find a reason why you would be doing these things, right? And like what you're, you're concerned. What are you concerned about? You know, like authentically concerned. <laughs> and that's why you would show a concerned look. It's tricky. I mean, like acting, like I remember in the acting classes and so forth, there's a lot that goes into it. And sometimes it can go haywire as you as you tap into some some old emotions or experiences and <laughs> crazy things can happen in an acting class. But I, I think just, I'm always looking for that authentic, sort of an authentic, like wh what, how do you authentically feel? Like, tell me, like, why do you do what you do? And if we can find that moment in your life where it was like, and a lot of times people have it like right there. It's like, I'll tell you why I do what I do. Because when I was 12 years old, a bully came up to me at school and X, Y, Z, you know, they tell that story. And that's that once, once there's that, that sort of conviction there, then the acting out piece is just sort of a, it's kind of icing on the cake. And so it's just sort of like, you did this already naturally where you acted out the bully coming up to you on the playground and you said to him and you pointed, so just kind of getting a little bit more definition around those, those scenes. We're always kind of looking to play out a scene so people can picture it in their mind. That's when storytelling can be most effective. So that's, that's an interesting, that's an important point because I find that this is one of the things that 
people have the most difficulty with. It's this contrast between what you call narrative summary versus scenes. So I, I normally refer to you know scenes as moments, and I would say you know you have a moment and the rest is all you know exposition or just narration or you're you're telling, but I want you to show me. I find that some people grasp the context of the scene or the, the, the show me the moment fairly easily, and some people don't. Now, when, you, when you're doing workshops, how much you find that it's more one than the other? I was a participant at a workshop with a guy named Kevin Allison, and I think he comes from the improv world, but he also has a, a podcast called Risk, which is about telling kind of vulnerable stories. And he said that this is one of the, the common, I don't want to say mistakes, but one of the common things that beginning storytellers do is they'll spend most of their time or the majority of their time in narrative summary, which is sort of at the 30,000 foot view. And I'll have to come up with a better example than this because this is the one I keep using, but I need a more compelling one. That would be like me saying, yeah, about 10 years ago, I was working at the the Goreflex Corporation. I was a copywriter and I had been working there for five years. So that's all that's all high level, right? And then scene. One night, I'm in the office. It's 1030. There's nobody else in the office. It's quiet except for the sound of me clacking at the keyboard when suddenly I notice that there's a light on in the boss's office. And I hear a creaking sound and then the sound of a baby crying, right? So, I mean... Again, I'll I'll come up with some other scene <laughs> another time. I'm getting tired of that one, but 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 you get you can get the difference, right? Like one is this high level information that really doesn't conjure up any images in your mind. The other is we're on the ground with the storyteller in that situation, and your mind can almost not help but conjure up that situation. Even as I said that, you might have been imagining sitting in front of the computer in the dark and seeing a light and hearing a baby crying. So Kevin Allison said that, or or I think in my book, I, I said, you know, like we probably spend 70% of our time as beginning storytellers in narrative summary and 30% in scenes. And a goal to move towards is, is the reverse, you know, maybe 30% narrative summary and 70% scenes so that your narrative summary is kind of connectors, uh, but from scene to scene to scene. The example I usually give to people to, to just make that different the differences, I say, you know, if you want to tell me how strange your childhood was, don't tell me how it was for years. Just tell me how it was for one Thanksgiving dinner. So, you know, don't say, oh, my favorite. Just say, so it's Thanksgiving dinner last year and I'm sitting down next to my brother and then my, my crazy uncle Kev comes in and Kev looks at me and says, I find that like explaining that is, I find that fairly easy, and I tend to tell people the bigger one of the the almost undeniable cases when you've gone from one to the other is dialogue. If you're telling me what the conversation was about, that's just a narration. When you're actually saying, "So I looked at him and said," and you actually do the dialogue, then you're automatically into a scene. But even so, I, I find it very challenging with some people. They just keep resisting the scene. I don't know if it's that they lack the resources to say, okay, well, how do I make it into a scene? And, and I just tend to say, well, try to tell it in the present tense if you don't find it too weird and just do a lot of dialogue. Because if you can do that, then it's you, you can't avoid the scene or a moment if you're doing that. But it's one of the things most people I find struggle with. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, this is just like like anything any of your listeners here, well, if you actually, if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably an avidly interested in storytelling. So maybe you're, you're already practicing this, but it's not something you're going to pick up after listening to a half hour conversation or an hour conversation. It takes a lot of practice, right? And that's probably one of those things, you know, as a, if you're, if you're working with executives or people in the business world, this is, this pushing their comfort zone is like, oh, I'm going to act out a conversation or something like that you know, encourage people to to go there, you know, like the, the more that you're able to draw people in to your story and doing that is one way to do it, the more you're going to connect with them. 
I mean, we do this all the time anyway. Like you don't need to be, I, that's one thing I try to stress is to demystify storytelling as if it was just something like you and I, I'm also a Toastmasters guy. So you and I are Toastmasters people, actors and so forth. It can sort of seem like, oh, that's that's a rarefied realm storytelling. But no, we tell stories all the time. Right now, obviously we can't stand around the water cooler or we're limited in doing that. But whether it's on Zoom or in person, anytime you answer the question, how was your weekend, you're going to be telling a story. It might not be a great story, actually, if everything goes well. It, you know, I was like, yeah, I went to a party. It was great. Yeah, it's not a great story. Oh, I went to a party and you wouldn't believe what happened. You know, like I show up and my ex-girlfriend is there. And I was like, oh my God, I can't even, I haven't talked to her in seven years. And she's got a really angry look on her face. I mean, uh, that's probably going to be a good story. And you probably might act some of that out. I find it surprising that even people like Toastmasters who speak on a regular basis, they still struggle with the concept of moments or scenes. You know, just last week, I had someone coming to me and saying, oh, I've got the storytelling project. Can you just give me a hand? Because, you know, this is what you do. And, and most of it was like, so my father was like this and my mother was like that. And then the I stayed between the two of them and, and one would then say, so it's like, it's all of that is you just, I mean, you're not that far away. So it's, not, I, I don't think it's the 30,000 foot view but you are just telling me what happened. You're now you're not showing me any of it. And and there's a there is an analogy that I've gotten from Marsha Shandur, who who is a storyteller I really like. And she says she describes it as as movies because the whole idea is you know a good story is a movie in the minds of your audience. So she says okay, so imagine this as there's voiceover, there's montage, and there is an action scene. So a voiceover, it would be like an audiobook, right? You're just telling everything and you want to avoid that as much as you possibly can. The montage is when you just talk about four or five different things that you need to just set up in place so the story makes sense, but you're not going into any detail. So you're saying, you know, I was traveling through, I was traveling through Europe and we went to, to Paris and visited the Eiffel Tower. We went to this other place and when this, we went running with the bulls. We, we really enjoyed some tapas in Barcelona. So that's all sort of a montage, a montage. It's a lot of really quick things. And then you say, but then when we arrived in Russia, I'm in the metro in Russia and blah, blah, blah. All right, so she goes from the montage to a scene. But yeah, I, to me, to me, that is one of the biggest challenges most people have with any story. The other challenge that I tend to find all the time is people, either they can figure out what their story is about or they figure it out, but don't make sure that they drop a few things throughout the story to highlight that that's what the story is about. So the story is going to be about some big learning they had. But at no point in the story, you see them not knowing that thing. If I'm telling a story, say, about how I learned to communicate better with my daughter, what a lot of people I've worked with in the past would do is they just at some point get better at communicating with their kids, but at no point in the story, they were terrible at it. And then it just doesn't really work. Then the message just finds, it's like, okay, fine, you got a little better at something. Like, it's, it's not much of a story. And it's like, no, no, I was terrible at it. It was like, but you didn't tell me that. Like, where is the... Where is the, the awkward conversation you're having with your kid or the blowout or the, the fight? Uh, it was just not there at any point. Yeah, yeah. That's the kind of the change and challenge we've talked about. And stakes, you know, the more you can raise the stakes, that's always like, you know, in, in acting class or in movies and stories in general, high stakes. By the way, we're all living in high stakes situation and, you know, high stakes situation these days. So there's stories going on all around you. Surely you can probably tell a story of the, the day, you know, the first day the pandemic really hit you. For me, it was March 13th. I could tell you that story, but I won't. Probably don't need to hear <laughs> more stuff about the pandemic. I was also going to say, like, like there's there's a framework that I use. It's not I didn't make it up, but it's it's similar to what I've heard Pixar uses for their framework for all of their films. So there I was. That's essentially the um, you know the the opening of a story. I call it context. Then one day, and then and then and then and finally. And what I learned from that was this, right? And that whole middle section is basically the series of challenges that the the hero, you or or someone you know, overcomes, and then the lesson they learned at the end. And it is probably important to get to the end and have a, a lesson that you learned or something that's and and because of that day, now I do things differently. And here's what I here's what I learned from that. 
And I would save the lesson for the end, right? Yeah. You know, like it, it, rather than say, I, I, my family's really strange, you know, show, don't tell. So describe the scene first. And then you could say, yeah, my family's really strange. That's just like one of many things. Let the um, listener discover that. Yeah. What I was going to say is that, the, that what you're referring to that everybody talks about as the Pixar structure is not actually the Pixar structure is Ken Smith's story spine, which is once upon a time, one day and because of that and because of that and because of that until finally and and after that day or ever since that day so yeah it's it's the story spine from ken smith and what you said about how leave the lesson for the end yeah i think i agree i think the lesson should be left at the end what i think sometimes is helpful is something i picked up from the guys from anecdote that we were talking about earlier is what they call a relevance statement so Instead of just launching into a story, which which is absolutely fine to do on a stage, I don't think I've, there's any issue with just launching into the story when you're on stage uh, or on presentation, but that feels very awkward if you're doing it in conversation. I think somebody says something, and if your first thing out of your mouth is, five years ago, blah, 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 it just seems really weird. So, so I've seen that the relevant statement be something as simple as, well, now that you say that, it reminds me of something that happened to me five years ago. Fine. Now it sounds okay. Or, or people can do some pretty unexpected things sometimes. Um, I mean, there was this time last year where you're not giving the moral away. You're just giving maybe the theme. So the theme is people do strange things, and then you're still gonna tell your story. And and I I don't do that that much, but I think that it has one big advantage for people who are not necessarily great storytellers, is it takes away the temptation of finishing and then giving three, four, five lines of this is the moral of the story. Because you kind of already set it up, so you don't have to ref- to do it at the end. Whereas I think a lot of people do is they just tell the story and then spend you know almost the same amount telling what, what the story means. So it's like, then tell a better story. <laughs> Absolutely. I think that's that sounds like a gr- great advice. And especially, I think storytelling is a little bit, I think at this point, people know that storytelling is effective in the business world, right? And and yet there's this, or anywhere, right? That we're built for story. We're, it's one of the, the oldest forms of, of human communication. But we don't know exactly how to use it or where to use it, sure, on stage. But like you just said in a conversation, well, funny you should mention that because five years, you know, without sounding a little bit silly. So yeah, I mean, one thing that occurs to me for anyone who's listening and they're sort of just starting at this is... I'm I'm just a fan of of working with where you are. I advise people to start a story bank and so start writing down your stories as they're happening to you on a daily and weekly basis. And I don't mean writing out the full story, but just a phrase or two to remind you of what happened. So you can start collecting stories, but then you can also start to just notice how are you already telling stories because you tell stories. I'm focused on this, so I now see storytelling all around us all the time. But if you're not, then you might think, oh, that that's only something that's happening when I'm watching a movie or reading a book. Just notice, oh, I I, I told a story earlier today and, and here's how I went into that. And it was fairly natural, you know, so just always looking for that authentic way in. Before we're done, I wanted to share something that reading your book, it came back to me. And, and I'm not sure if, if this thing that happened makes me sound like a horrible human being or a non-judgmental human being, but I think it will, it will speak to you. I was working as a financial advisor in, you know, the, this was 2008, I think. So we have that in common to some extent. And, and, and there was this guy from, from the London office in my company, and we had a, like a manager's meeting. And at some point we're in the meeting and, and I, I just catch him making, taking some notes and, and something just catches my eye and I'm not sure what it is. And then I pay more attention and I see it and I'm like, hold on. One of his hands is really, really big. Like I'm talking about like baseball glove big. Okay. Well, maybe not so much because that would be monstrous. But like it's it's like one and a half to two times the size of, of what most people's hands are. And, and I just like, okay, well, I never heard of anything like that. And then I, I just went up to him and I said, please don't take this the wrong way, but what's the deal with your hand? And he kind of like, you know, obviously I don't think he, took my question very well and he clammed up and he just had mumbled something like always oh, just just been always been like that or something like that and i i think you know exactly why i'm telling you that 
because you shared in the book how you you talked. Didn't you do a, like a show or, or a presentation that's called Little Hand, right? Yeah. Yeah. So my question there is, so, so in this show, you were sharing how I think one of your hands is slightly smaller than the other. I think I know the answer, but but for anyone who's listening, you know, you picked something that a lot of people would prefer not to draw attention to, as I guess would have been the case with, with Matt, the, this guy who used to work with me. But you chose to draw attention to it and you, you drew a lot of attention to it. The whole thing was about this. So why did you do that? And why is that something that people should be doing in their storytelling? I opened the, this was another solo performance and little hand. The first line of the performance was going up to the audience and going, I've got one hand that's a little bit smaller than the other hand. Can you see that? Can you see that? <laughs> you know. And then I, I just went into the story of that. Yeah, it's kind of like, it was my vulnerability, right? A weakness, you could say, in quotes, a weakness that maybe ends up being a strength. But I just told the story of my experience of that in a, you know, in a somewhat abstract way, but kind of with scenes of being teased a little bit in middle school and wanting to get away from it and how I felt, you know, there was one point where I sort of act out like feeling like Quasimodo is like, do not look at my hand, you know, but at the end sort of coming to, and then my left hand, I was always like, oh, my left hand, my left hand's my strong hand. I've never am left-handed and is this dichotomy, right? And then by the end, it was sort of like the two hands coming together of weakness and strength being more together like that. So that's a theme for me is sort of vulnerability. And I, I think that it's, I, I think that was probably even more than the mango story. I think that was probably the most vulnerable that I've uh, made myself. And I know from reading some Brene Brown that the feeling of vulnerability is really uncomfortable. You know, it's not that you're going to feel great when you're being vulnerable. It will feel uncomfortable. But I think it's important, you know, and I think that we don't need to necessarily divulge every secret challenge that we've had in our lives on the first date, you know, your first performance uh, with an audience or first meeting or conversation. But it's not a black and white situation. But if you can edge in the direction of being authentic, sharing your challenges, people will gravitate towards you because guess what? Everybody that is listening to you is challenged as well. That could be said in any time, but especially now. And if you're not sharing that at all, if you're not giving any hint that you're suffering or being challenged right now, then it's a cognitive dissonance with your listener because they're, they're struggling. Everyone's struggling right now. And if you're playing it off like you're doing great during the pandemic, during the global pandemic, then people are going to start to kind of feel resentful towards you, whether they, whether they realize it or not. That's just my, my thinking about that. You know, if you decide to do that, to put, be a little bit vulnerable in and honest and authentic in what you do, you're not going to be on the vanguard of this because there's leaders out there, including Steve Jobs, Satya Nadella of Microsoft and, and many others who are out there telling their vulnerable stories. So I just always encourage uh, people to do that. I think I would hope that Steve Jobs is still not out there sharing, sharing his vulnerable stories. It's a slightly different type of story. <laughs> well, he is on the internet. Yeah, you could go look at him now. No, I completely agree. Uh, I mean, you know, I, I I did write a book called Bear, a guide to brutally honest public speaking, and the cover is is you know a, a Clark Kent type of guy opening his shirt, and his heart is just visible there. To me, it's kind of obvious why that story is more impactful than the Mango story because the Mango story is a story of of loss, you know, and we we can sh relate to that. But the story of I have this thing about me that really bothers me, that makes me feel ashamed, that makes me feel smaller than other people. And I'm now coming to terms with that. Like every single person in the world probably has that. And if they don't, they're probably a bit of a dick, right? So if there's nothing about you that you're a little bit embarrassed about, that maybe you don't want to draw attention to, then you know, you, you're a bit of a strange human being. I would probably guess that after you did that show, uh, or after you, you know, you you rehearsed a turn for that show. If it really bothered you before, probably doesn't bother you much anymore if it still does at all, right? 
it's kind of a minor thing that I don't think about on a regular basis, but I'm actually happy that you brought that up. Yeah, there was some same thing. Somebody came up to me after one of those performances and they they had a, uh, a disability and they said, I really related to your story and I've experienced some of the things that, that you've, you know, were showing that that performance. Yeah, no, I, I think, I think, you know, Brené Brown has, <laughs> has broken the ground on, on that one, but it's surprising how how sometimes it's difficult to convince people that whatever you're doing, even if you're sharing a story of a lot of achievement, you still need to spend more time. I think you said this in the book, right? It doesn't matter if it's a success story. You still need to spend more time where you were struggling to make that a success. Because if you want someone to help you with a problem, the person who says, I've never really had that problem, but it doesn't sound too difficult. I'm sure I can help you out. Is a lot less interesting to you as a guide than the person who goes like, oh man, that is a nightmare. I went through that last year and I hated it, but you know, I figured it out so so I can help you for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. I don't think my wife would mind me sharing this, but she went through breast cancer treatment in 2018. And now she is launching a group coaching program for, for people who have been through breast cancer and are ready to kind of move on to the, uh, the next stage of their lives. And let me tell you, as she's as getting that out there, like people, she's getting a lot of, of great feedback for like, you know, hey, thank you for sharing your story and for doing this important work, right? It wouldn't be quite as effective if she had not gone through something like that herself and and was vulnerable enough to put that out there. I don't think, you know, Gandalf might have might work as a guide or Yoda might work as a guide without us knowing anything about their own fallibilities. But when it comes to to human beings communicating in the real world through stories, the guide needs to be someone who's gone through, if not the same struggle, but struggles that are somewhat related to the types of struggles that your audience is going through, because otherwise you just come across as as, as a know-it-all or just someone who's not terribly relatable to the people that you're trying to, to help and, and that would defeat the whole purpose. Actually, a lot of business people will say, well, they don't need to know my story. This is about them. The customer is the hero. And that's true in your brand story. The customer is the hero and you're Yoda. That's been kind of outlined before. But I would argue the same as you just said there, like people need to know your story as well and who you are and what drives you. Otherwise, you know, like, who are you to tell me this, give me this feedback? Yeah, I don't want to go in on another massive tangent, but but what I think about that is, is this confusion between that the story is about the customer. It's not about the customer, it's for the customer. That's different. You know, so the, the, you're not saying... I mean, you can tell stories about your customers, but often you are the character of the story and the whole story is just thought out, okay, is this going to benefit my customer? How? How are they going to relate to this? How are they going to learn from it? But you still, you're likely to still be the character often or someone else is the character, but you're, you're telling it for them. So, you know, what do they need to see from this character so this is useful for them? And I think that's a slight change in, in this whole idea, oh, it's about your customer, that confuses people because they think they cannot tell their own stories because it should be about the customer. It's like, no, it is for the customer. It's not about the customer. Point taken. Good observation. Right. And on that note, if people want to to find out more about you, where, where do you want to point them to? So I think a good place to start would be to go to storypoweredspeaker.com. That will take you to the book page of my website. And you can kind of check that out. And then, you know, you'll see the, the rest of the um, offerings I have on my website, which is normanjbell.com. But I would maybe go to storypoweredspeaker.com coaching programs, courses, and and more. So yeah, feel free to reach out to me as well at normanjbell.com. Perfect. Norman, it's been fantastic. Thank you very much for your time today, man. Thank you so much, Francisco. It's been a pleasure to be here. All right, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Take care of yourselves. And until next time. I hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, I'd love for you to subscribe and leave us a review or a rating on the Apple Podcasts app. It's very easy. You open the app and find this show. Then scroll down a little, and when you see the stars, tap. I'd really appreciate it, and it does help other people find us. And if you'd like to get in touch or find out more about what I do, reach out to me on LinkedIn or visit my website, storypowers.com. <laughs>